Ready? Born ready. Episode of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. Today, we're doing things a little bit different. We are going to bring you three conversations about the Roe v. Wade abortion debate that's happening right now in America and at probably your dinner table, too. You're going to hear interviews I did with three black women. First is Lauren Sudial. She is a constitutional law professor at Georgia State University School of Law. You will also hear from Brittany Anthony of the Whole Life Project and Kwajalein Jackson of the Feminist Center. Now, obviously, the professor uh, focuses the conversation on the legal component of what's happening. Brittany and Kwajalein are going to provide their perspectives and their lived experiences. You might hear them say things that make you mad, things that you strongly disagree with. That's okay. I know as you are a listener of our show, Where the Party At, you're mature enough to handle that and to really think about what they're saying. So turn your phone on Do Not Disturb. Give yourself the time to really absorb this episode. I think you'll learn something new. I'm excited to welcome to the show Lauren Sudial. She is an associate professor of law at Georgia State University, where she teaches constitutional law, capital punishment, and access to justice, as well as law reform. Lauren also serves as founding faculty director of the Center for Access to Justice. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I just gave a gave a little bit of your bio, but just give us a little bit more. So who are you? Tell us about your upbringing, how you got into this work. Sure. I guess as relevant to this conversation, even though it's not starting at the beginning, I did also serve as a law clerk before going into teaching. I clerked on the um, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and then also on the U.S. Supreme Court. After that, I went on to work as an attorney at the Southern Center for Human Rights, where I represented people on death row in Alabama and Georgia and also litigated uh, right to counsel issues. Um, But before that, um, I'm from the Boston area, but I moved to the South um, after law school or after clerking in part because I felt like it was really important to work on the types of issues that I've been working on um, in a part of the country that's so often understudied and under-resourced and where a lot of the issues that I'm sure you talk about um, are very different from how they play out in the rest of the country. Um, And a lot of my research now focuses on how lower income and other marginalized individuals and communities navigate both the civil and criminal legal systems um, with a focus on how that happens in this part of the country. Got it. And I wanted you on the show, Professor, because you are a constitutional law professor. And of course, we are talking about Roe v. Wade. And is that constitutionally acceptable? Uh, Is it in the Constitution that women have the right to privacy and the right to an abortion? So can you just, for the folks who did not go to law school, uh, help Mm -hmm. us understand what does Roe v. Wade do? Uh, And then what's the difference between Roe v. Wade and what folks are also hearing? 
Planned Parenthood versus Casey? So I guess so before getting into those cases, I think it's sort of helpful to understand right, this debate around why people are talking about whether something's in the Constitution or not. A lot of um, cases in the area that we refer to as substantive due process base certain rights, you know, includes the right to terminate a pregnancy, but also things like the right, right to same-sex marriage. A lot of those rights are based in what we refer to as substantive due process, which essentially means that we have read meaning into two words or, you know, three words um, or into two words, due process in the constitution. And I think there's this very active debate around, you know, why you sort of see some people saying it's not in the constitution and others saying it is, is because obviously those two words, due process, don't in and of it themselves, right, talk about abortion, the right to terminate a pregnancy. They don't speak to the right to be able to marry whoever you want, whether that's someone of a different race or someone of the same gender. Um, but yet over time, the court has read rights into those two words, and then they have become part of law, right, and part of our, our legal structure. Um, and we can talk more about, you know, what I think of the nature of some of those debates, but that's where ultimately cases like Roe and Casey are based. Although earlier there was more debate in earlier cases before Roe, there was there were other understandings of where the right to terminate a pregnancy lied, or there were earlier interpretations about where and how the court might read that right in the Constitution, but ultimately it ended up being grounded in, in substantive due process. Um, so Rose set forth the right initially and set forth a three-part framework. Um, I don't know that it's worth getting into sort of the weeds of that, but Casey sort of changed um, Casey sort of changed the framework for how we were to understand and apply the right. But obviously, this this current case, if this leech draft is in fact right, what will become law sort of does away with all of that, right? So Roe and Casey um, are sort of different ways of thinking about the right and when the right might be implemented or where the state's interests, how you balance the state's interest in protecting potential life against the woman's interest in being able to terminate the pregnancy. Roe and Casey's were sort of just different understandings of that and setting forth different ways of thinking about that right. Um, but that Right. If this opinion is law, that all sort of goes away. So assuming that the SCOTUS leak is in indeed what they're going to end up deciding to do, what's next? So what, what the opinion actually does, right, I think it's important to understand that I've been talking to a lot of my friends who are not lawyers, right? And I think, I think for those of us who think about these issues every day, you know, it seems straightforward, but it's not to most people, right? If something... If you go back to you know the, the founding principles of our country, right, the federal government was initially supposed to be a, a government of limited powers, right? So if the federal government, or if you read certain things into the Constitution, they're binding on everyone. But if you don't, if, if there's not something in the Constitution that's binding on all the states, issues are by default left to the states. And so essentially, what what Dobbs would do if this is law, right, would be, is basically saying because we think Roe was wrong, right? There is no right to terminate a pregnancy in the constitution. By default, this issue is left to the states. So that means that states can right, come up with whatever laws and the standard of review that's applied to those laws is very minimal. Um, because arguably, another thing that I think that's important to understand is that legislatures can, you know, they can't do 
anything, but the standard that we apply to something that doesn't get special protection is called rational basis review, which basically means there has to be a rational basis for the law and it has to reach a legitimate end, right? So laws that sort of be completely outlandish, I have my, it's hard to think of an example right now, right? Those might not pass muster because a court might say, right, even under the lowest possible standard, that law is arbitrary or it's targeting a certain group, but the bar is fairly low, right? And so if you go to law school, you'll learn that almost any type of law can fairly easily pass rational basis review. When there was a right to term to terminate a pregnancy, right? The standard was very high. And Roe and Casey complicated that a little bit by coming up with sort of a standard that was very specific to the nature of this right. But in taking that away, it essentially means that it's this is now in the hands of the states to decide, right, what laws they want to pass, whether they want to allow this or not, under what conditions they'll allow it. And the lens that courts will use in analyzing those laws is going to be very deferential. Right. So states will have a lot of power in deciding what they think makes no sense. Got it. So one of the arguments that we're hearing in this conversation is that the Supreme Court should be immune to the court of public opinion. Um, the court of public opinion is mixed on if abortion should be allowed. I think the majority of Americans say that abortion should be allowed, at least in some circumstances. So given that you've clerked for a Supreme Court justice, you study this in your day-to-day life, how do you balance? What is the right approach between what the public is asking for and what the Supreme Court is deciding to do? I mean, that's a good question, and it's a, you know, it's a complicated question. I think right, the court often, there are certain issues where the legal analysis does, in a sense, call for the court to look at what most states are, you know, are doing. Um, But I think, you know, interestingly, I think, you know, Justice Alito and those who are in the purported majority in this draft opinion, I think they would say, well, that's what we're trying to do, or we're trying to leave this up to the public. Because many people understand the Supreme Court as a counter-majoritarian institution, right? It's, it exists, in theory, separate from public opinion, at least in the sense that, right, public wills or exercise through the vote or other mechanisms dictates, right, the court doesn't operate based on that principle, it operates essentially based on what nine people or five out of those nine people think. And, you know, there's sort of good reasons for that, if we think about separation of powers and checks and balances within the government. But I think it would also be naive to think that public opinion doesn't influence the court in some way, right, all sorts of cases over time, going back to thinking about Brown versus Board of Education and ending um, you know, segregation, issues like same-sex marriage, and people have written a lot about how they think public opinion, sort of in a loose sense, has influenced the court. But I think the court, in a lot of ways, is really intended not just to follow public opinion, right, um, but instead to sort of set forth what they think, how they think the Constitution should be understood, and oftentimes that is based on, right, history or past interpretation, things like that. But I think um, I think it probably does, it, it does exist in some space separate from public opinion, but the question as to how much or how, you know, the court should or does take that into account, I think is, a, is an open question that people have very you know, complicated and different views on. So 
again, you've clerked for Supreme Court justice. Can you explain to the public what goes into that deliberation process? How would a justice decide on a case or decide in this event to overturn a previous ruling? So, again, there's probably a range of, answer, a range of answers to that, some of which are more cynical than others. Right? So I think I think a lot of justices, obviously, they've had like long careers, whether as a judge on a previous court, perhaps as a law professor, perhaps as a you know, practicing lawyer. And I think they, many of them have sort of very developed philosophies of what they think of the Constitution and how they think the law should operate. Sometimes those do change over time. There are stories of justices who came onto the courts sort or of thinking one way and then over time, over decades, have changed their views. Um, but a lot of justices have certain understandings of how we should interpret the Constitution. Because what's really interesting about the Constitution is, at least with, with regard to a lot of the rights we spend a lot of time talking about, there's very little written in the Constitution. So you have to sort of, so you have to decide. You can't just rely on the words themselves because they tell you very little, right? What does equal protection mean? That could mean a lot of different things. What does due process mean? So justices often have different ways of thinking about that. Some justices are proponents of originalism, being that we should look to the original meaning, right? What did the founders think these words meant? Others believe we should look to um, right history. Um, there's the idea of a living constitution, that the idea of that how we understand the constitution changes over time. So I think there are these sort of broad schools of thought. But then I think for any individual justice, right, he or she may just have certain things that they, right, understandings that they apply in interpreting the Constitution, but it's, you know, it can be very, it can be very individualized. Um, and sorry, there was something else that you said that I had a thought about, and I can't remember what it is. Uh, but I mean, as to the deliberation, the justices are obviously spend time reviewing materials themselves. Uh, this issue is not a new issue, so I suspect a lot of them already had strong feelings about this beforehand. Um, I mean, Justice Alito was on the Third Circuit, I believe, when they decided Casey, and he filed the dissent, right? So we sort of know what he thinks about a lot of these issues already, um, even though in the hearings, you don't really get much of that. So justices obviously have their own views, they do discuss with their clerks, and ultimately the justices have a conference where they discuss issues with each other. But I suspect this is one of those issues where a lot of folks probably already had pretty strong feelings about how they think it should be interpreted before they actually had any discussions because this is such a um, this is not a this is not a new issue. Right. The, you know, the other thing about this issue is the partisan nature as well as what is prompting people's beliefs on the issue? Uh, the, mm -hmm. the conversation about when does life begin um, is often rooted in a religious conversation. So how do mm -hmm. you reconcile that with the law, which is generally supposed to be seen of as black and white? Well, you know, the one interesting thing, you know, and I actually point this out to my students when I'm, when I, when I teach and, or when I have in the past taught issues like Roe and Casey, the court earlier said, we take no view on when personhood begins. But what I asked them is, is that really true? Right? Because in a sense, by not saying anything at all, they were sort of implying indirectly that it doesn't begin at conception, right? Otherwise, the logic of the opinion might not make sense. And so I think one thing that's important to sort of think about is not just what's said, but what assumptions underlie that and, and also what the... Um, 
sort of trade-offs are in, in saying one thing and what that might mean about something else. But, you know, one thing that I think is, one thing that I think has been so interesting to me about the debates around this issue is that they are so tied up, right? This is a, this is a very personal issue. Um, it's also a political issue, but I, I find it interesting how, and I think it's just sort of a broader statement about where we are as a society, where we are politically, that people are really unwilling or just not able to see the other side's perspective. You know, I think a lot of my friends are fairly liberal, progressive in nature, a lot of people that I interact with. And they were, they were very quick, of course, to, you know, malign the opinion, say everything about it is wrong, say all sorts of, you know, incredibly and perhaps understandably harsh things about it. But, you know, I sort of asked, I tried to push back on them a little, not as to the ultimate outcome of the opinion, but right, the idea that we would read all of this into two words in the constitution. Um, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's crazy to sort of suggest, right. That you don't, that you don't agree with that approach. I, I guess I just, I think I, I'm pushing my law students on this a lot. I think it's become really hard for us to sort of draw a distinction between seeing something as Right, illegitimate and just not agreeing with it. Um, but I think that's, you know, I think this is our failure as a society is that we can't really have meaningful substantive discussion anymore because, you know, you referenced earlier a black and white issue. I think many people see this issue that way. And I get that because at the end of the day, right, it is a very personal issue and either you have a right to this or you don't. Um, but right, I think there are these, I think there are really complicated questions at play here. And at the end of the day, right, part of what the court is deciding, you know, is it is at essence, right, whether you can have an abortion or not. But what the court is really doing is deciding who can decide that question, right, and where the power to make that decision lies. So before, because this had been a protected right, that was binding on states and states were really restricted as to what they could do, at least in theory. I think you could critique some of the court's prior opinions for letting the states maybe do more than others think they should have under the old framework. But essentially now what the court is saying, um, I mean, if you read the opinion, you can obviously tell <laughs> sort of what, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're saying that a fetus is a person that has all sorts of other implications, but what they're the bottom line is that states can make these decisions, that it is not the court's place to do that, or that the court can't read all of this into the Constitution and therefore bind the states. Um, and that's really what the court is saying. But obviously, leaving it to the states, especially in certain states, has very obvious ramifications, especially you can see how states are already reacting. I mean, a lot of states had already put laws into place saying that as soon as the court decides this, they will you know, automatically <laughs> like implement law um forbidding it so you know it's just it's a really it's a really tricky issue and one where i think both it's hard for us to have meaningful debate in part because of where we are but also because this is an issue where it's hard to to compromise right if, if you really do think that a fetus is a person it's hard to see how it's hard to see how you can negotiate right for some other outcome you know, on the based on the research I've been looking at, 26 states are likely or certain to ban abortion. Um, I know there's a conversation in Georgia 
about um, having Governor Kemp call another special session um, to mm -hmm. perhaps do the same thing. So if that happens, you know, the other part of the conversation I'm also hearing is that women need to be mindful of digital surveillance uh, if they are living in a state where abortion is illegal and they either seek an abortion um, or they, you know, perhaps even go to another state to seek an abortion. Is that something that women should be worried about or is that a government overreach or is that the right approach? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think whether it's, you know, whether it's overreach is probably a separate question from whether women should be should be worried. But I think in addition to what you're saying, there's also states that are suggesting um, it should be criminalized and serious criminal ramifications should result, right? Not just that you wouldn't allow the procedure, but that if somehow you were still able to, you know, obtain access to the procedure, that you could be subject to criminal sanctions or even that, and, you know, I haven't thought through the legality of any of this, but that even if you were to go to another state, you could be held accountable, you know, criminally for having an abortion, and I would imagine that, right, once, especially once you're talking about bringing the force of the criminal law to bear on this, then, you know, to your question, perhaps there's more justification, not from, not that I think it's justified, but at least the state would have more reason to be suggesting they need to have access to these things to ensure that criminal activity is not occurring. So I, I do think it is a really scary time. And there are a lot of sort of mechanisms and vehicles, however you want to think about it, already in place to get this type of information. Um, so, you know, I don't want to be sort of fear mongering, but I, but I do think that there is a lot of reason to be afraid, um, particularly with some of the proposals that I've already seen in terms of how far certain groups, you know, seem to want to take what this opinion would will have, you know, would license them to do. Professor, how do you, get folks to trust the legal process when we're going to end up seeing some states where I imagine a state like California, where there are very little, if no restrictions, and then uh, conservative, mostly Southern states where there are going to be um, very strict res restrictions. How do you reconcile trust in the Supreme court trust in, you know, the process when there's such disparities in who has access to what? I mean, that's, uh, that's a really good question. As to the differences in access, right, sort of setting aside right, this issue for just a second, I mean, I think the nature of having that, type, that kind of um, difference between states is partly just the problem of, right, again, sort of goes back to the founding of our nation and sort of the tension that has always existed between the federal government and state governments, right, and that sort of pulling of power and the states wanting to claim power for themselves, right? It's the whole story of our constitution really in many ways. And so I think there's, there's plenty of different ways in which states vary wildly on all sorts of issues. I think right, when you, when you think about that in the context of certain issues, it seems particularly strange, right? That, that you would have these sort of mini universes in one country. Um, and certainly Right. It, it seems to it seems to reek of inequality, right? That especially because certain people who have privilege, right, can, if they live in a state that forbids it, could at least buy you know, plane tickets and go somewhere else to do it. But obviously there are plenty of people who 
do not have the ability to do that and will be sort of, I mean, even arguments made before we got to this point in states like Texas, where so many clinics had been closed that even though theoretically you had the right to terminate, you would have to drive like hundreds of miles to get to a clinic, right? So in a way, that idea is not new. It's just, this is just a much more dramatic um, version of it. Um, so, and as to the sort of legitimacy of the court, I think that's a really hard issue. You know, I tend to personally, and like, I think the way I teach is such that I, I know there are people who long ago sort of wrote off the Supreme Court as not being a court or being this sort of illegitimate institution. Uh, you know, I, I tend to not, um, think or promote that view in part because, in some ways, I think it's, you know, I think it's in a way a, sort of a privilege to have that view because there are plenty of people who are subject to courts, right? Not just the Supreme Court, but all kinds of courts every day who don't have the sort of luxury of saying the court is illegitimate. I mean, courts decide issues every day, whether it's criminal cases, housing cases, domestic violence cases, benefits cases that dictate people's lives and, and, when that happens, right, that has a very real effect. So I, I mean, as to whether we should view them as illegitimate, I guess that's a different question. But, you know, I, I, I used to want to sort of say, well, you know, people have different views of how the law should operate, how you should interpret these provisions in the Constitution. And just because someone comes to a different conclusion than you doesn't mean Right, it's illegitimate, but I think that the way that the court is heading, it makes it harder to defend that outlook because it's harder to sort of understand right how the court can make these sharp turns, right? Or, you know, you asked earlier about the standard for, um, well, you didn't ask about this directly, but you know, overruling past precedent. I mean, in theory, the court has a the court has a framework that the Dobbs draft does mention as to the factors you're supposed to consider when you think about overruling past precedent. But I think the problem is, right, to your point, is that you see the court in many cases purport to apply these factors, but I think to many people it doesn't feel genuine. Like if you look at the court's discussion of reliance, right? Um in, in the draft opinion, they essentially say, well, there's no way for us to really measure reliance when in other cases, the court has said something completely different, right? So I just, and I think on some level, it's pretty obvious why, how people have relied on this as a constitutional right, right, over the years in terms of ordering their lives or thinking about how to structure when and what, how they want to have a family. So I don't know, I think just for me personally, I want to believe that I want to have faith in the law and just and, and the fact that yes, you know, if you're going to have a government structure the way we do, you have to at some point realize recognize that it's possible the court may change its mind. And sometimes we want it to change its mind, right? There are certain cases I think many people are very happy are overruled and are no longer on the books. Um, but I think it's really hard when you see so much sort of inconsistency in how the court goes about making these decisions. I understand why it's really hard to reconcile that um, sort of internally or, you know, externally. Professor, I have about 50 other questions for you, but I won't ask them all. <laughs> so in closing, um, for the folks listening to this who want to understand just more about the Supreme Court in general, um, mm -hmm. what should they read or listen to 
to help them understand how the court operates, its process, the deliberations, et cetera? What would you recommend? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like I'm, it's hard for me to recommend stuff just because I think um, I have a horrible memory. I think, uh, I mean, well, you know, I will say, I feel like I should plug my colleague's book. My colleague, Eric, Eric Stiegel, wrote um, a book that's called Supreme Myths, Why the Court is Not a Court and Why the Justices Are Not Judges. That will give you a very cynical view of what I was saying earlier. But I think there are also lots of books that are a little bit more focused on um, also sort of legal history. So I think The Hollow Hope, I think by Gerald Rosenberg is one book that I read years ago. Um, there are books like the Brethren that will sort of talk more about the nature of the court itself. So there are plenty of, of different books. So Professor, what is it that you want folks to think about, to read, to process as we are having this national conversation? And particularly in a way, you, you mentioned how hard it is to understand the other side. So mm -hmm. what would you say to that person that's really wrestling with this, that wants to understand the other side, but is really hard for them? What, what words of wisdom would you have for them? Um, I guess on some level, and I understand why this is hard for people to do in this context, but to try to have um, right, empathy. I think, I think there's two different levels, right? There's one level on which you're sort of talk thinking about person-to-person -person interactions and how you could sort of understand someone else's situation or how they view the world. But in a way, right, I think there's sort of a parallel to that with how we think about interpreting the law. And I think we've become just as sort of unable to do to do both, I think, increasingly. And this is, I think, the story of politics on the national level lately, right? We just, we are, we, you know, on a broad scale, seem, it seems to be very difficult for under, to understand where anybody else is is coming from um and i think that that makes it that, that makes it feel like you know it, it, everything is sort of a black or white issue and i don't know um you know in many different contexts it doesn't have to be i think the problem with the you know with an issue that the one we're talking about today is at the end of the day right either you think that this is a right grounded in the constitution or it isn't and that is, that is sort of a black and white question, right? Regardless of how you get there. Um, and I don't know that for someone who, right, strongly believes that women should have the right to, to choose how to govern their, their own bodies or when and how they want to have children, I don't think there's, I don't know if there's anything you can say to that person that would help them better understand right, the, the opinion. Um, but I guess I think one thing that I would also just say in terms of thinking about social change or social movements in general, right, is that the court is just, is just one piece of this. Um, and I think I've long thought that it doesn't really, that we sort of, we focus too much in some ways on the Supreme Court and that there really also needs to be a lot of focus on what happens on state level, local level. And I think that's going to only be even more important now, right, now that the court has said that we don't want to sort of insert ourselves in this area anymore and we're going to hand this back to the states that just increases the importance of doing work on the state level um because right and i think in a way that comes back to to voting i've thought many many times in you know the last few decades that 
there's sort of no issue worth working on at this point other than voting because it feels like that is sort of the basis of everything at this point, particularly as less and less is potentially protected by the Constitution. So I guess I would just encourage people, particularly people who maybe feel disheartened by this, to think about the other ways, right, in which they can make change, in which they can reach out to people. Because at the, at the end of the day, right, even if you're talking about voting and reaching out to people, um, I'm sorry being, I'm being a little long-winded, but I think I, I will bring this full circle. There was an article that I saw at, the other day when I was reading an article about this there was a little link at the bottom that linked to another article that was actually about um, Democratic Party and um, rural areas, right? And it was sort of talking about the failure of Democrats to engage meaningfully in rural areas. But I think these two issues are really related, right? Because I think it, it all goes, I think it goes back to the idea about not being able to talk to people and have real conversations. And because whether that conversation is happening at the level of Supreme Court or if it's happening on the level of local candidates going out and canvassing and talking to individual voters, right? It really is the same question of how can we understand where other people are coming from, truly understand where other people are coming from, and maybe try to change their mind or at least try to have a conversation about right, how we move forward. And I think that's going to have to happen, you know, maybe for now in this moment, that conversation as far as the court is concerned is going to be over. Um, but that moves the conversation elsewhere. The conversation is still going to happen. It's going to happen on a different level. And it also doesn't mean that, right, history keeps going. It doesn't mean that this issue won't come up again on the Supreme Court level and that it might come back to a different outcome. Thank you, Professor. I really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk with you about this. Uh, if folks want to keep in touch with you or follow what you're doing, where can they do that? Um, sure. Well, I have a faculty webpage. If you go to the Georgia State Law webpage, um, my faculty profile is there. But we all, And there should also be a link to the Center for Access to Justice um, that highlights the work that we do. Um, and I believe that that's law.gsu.edu backslash A2J. Great. Professor, really appreciate it. Have a wonderful uh, week. And this will not be the last time you're on the pod, we hope. Thanks. And thank you so much. Excited to welcome to the show, Brittany Anthony, who is with the Whole Life Project, which is part of the AND campaign. We'll explain a little bit more about the Whole Life Project and the AND campaign. But let me tell you just a brief little bit about who Brittany Anthony is. According to Brittany, this is her two sentence bio here. She is a writer, lover of God and people, and a whole life advocate who seeks to make people feel seen, heard, encouraged and valued. Brittany, that sounds quite lovely. You sound like an amazing human being. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So excited that you were able to join us. Uh, we are talking about um, something that happened in the news that really rocked the country. Um, and when I first heard it, I said, oh, that can't be real. <laughs> and uh, the text started flowing, the calls started happening. Uh, and it was real. There was as we all know, it's almost old news now, but it's still very hot in the news that the Supreme Court, there was a preliminary ruling that was leaked uh, that said that they had voted to uh, go do away with uh, Roe v. Wade. And so that's what we are here to talk about tonight or today. Uh, but before we get into that, I want our listeners to understand a little bit about who you are, 
um, your background. So just tell us about, we heard your brief bio, but give us a little bit more about who is Brittany Anthony? What is the Whole Life Project? What is the Anne campaign? Yeah, yeah. Thank you <clears throat> so much for having me on here. I'm super excited and also nervous, but I'm super grateful Oh, nothing to, to be nervous about. <laughs> it's all friends. Okay, awesome. Um, I'm really glad to be here, and it's like such an honor and a privilege, you know, to be here and talking about this with people who are both like-minded and not, because that's something that I just love meeting new people and talking to people about different ideas and things of that nature, you know, really trying to come to an understanding about things. Um, but a little about me, um, I'm originally from North Carolina. And um, I came down here to go to Georgia State when I was 17, so back in 2006, and I just came and stayed. So I'm kind of like, State? yeah, GSU represent. Um, so I'm officially a Georgia Peach. You know, it'll be 17 years in August that I've been here. So we're 16. Yeah, I lose count. Um, and originally, I actually wanted to be an OBGYN to um, prevent like teen pregnancies, and I was very much like about women's reproductive health and rights. And I still very much am, but in like a different aspect now. Um, and fun fact, a lot of people don't know about me. Um, I used to be a very hardcore advocate for Planned Parenthood. I was a volunteer for Planned Parenthood. I did community advocacy. After I graduated, I wanted to like work for Planned Parenthood. Like I was all in it very like pro you know, um, rights for um, abortion. And um, I actually met the Lord in... Um, I can't remember what year it was now, 2009 when I was at Georgia State. And that really is what transformed my whole mindset. And so coming from a, you know, for lack of a better word, the pro-choice side to now a pro-life aspect, I'm seeing, okay, there, there's some there's some missing pieces here. Um, and so long story short, um, I've been involved kind of in like the pro-life world since <clears throat> about... 2010, 2012, um, and I actually used to do sidewalk ministries. So I used to go to um, um, abortion clinics here in Atlanta regularly to reach out to um, abortion vulnerable men and women with pregnancy resources, with help to have conversations to say, hey, we love you. We love your baby. God loves you and your baby. And, you know, um, let us help you. You know, um, there's a better way. And um, I did that for about seven years and I only stopped because my work schedule changed. You know, I have to be at work at 745 in the morning. So it's hard to get out there in the mornings now. But I hope one day to get back out there and um, finding out about the end campaign four years ago, which um, basically is to educate and organize Christians for civic and cultural engagement that result in better representation, more just and compassionate policies and a healthier um, political culture. So that's straight from the website. And I found out about them, I think, in an article maybe like six years ago now. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there are Christians who like get it. Because I was like, I went from extreme liberal to extreme conservative. And then God was like, nah, neither one of this is it, you know. And I still wanted to be involved in a number of ways in finding the end campaign and being like, wow, there are other Christians out there who are like, wait, this, you know, neither side represents like my moral beliefs and my heart for justice in so many different ways. Um, so I was really grateful to find them. And then um, being part of the whole life project, not just being pro-life, but whole life and represent and realizing there's all these other different issues that are um, a result of, or not a result of, but abortion is um, just one symptom of uh, all these other issues that we're not talking about in a holistic perspective. Um, so, um, yeah, our project is dedicated to changing the narrative around abortion um, because there are some people who think pro-life being means um, some people who think 
being pro-life means being anti-woman and being pro-choice is pro-woman, but we are both, we would say we're pro-life and pro-woman and we're trying to look at this from a holistic perspective. Um, and we believe that as Christians, we have to be concerned with the whole life of every person and really seeking to um, address a variety of, of issues. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack in yeah. what you just said there. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to kind of go back to the top of what you said, um, <laughs> that you used to work at Planned Parenthood or support Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. and then you transition into being uh, pro-life, which mm-hmm. is a big swing. Um, so just talk to me a bit about your upbringing where you raised and you, you mentioned that you met Christ in, I think you said 2009. Mm-hmm. So can you just give us a little bit of information about your upbringing and your religious background prior to 2009? Yeah. So prior to that, um, so I was, you know, raised like going to church, like in the church and everything like that. Um, but I would not say that I was actually a Christian. Like I believed in God. I believed there was a creator. I was like, okay, there's creation. There's people. There is something, you know, like this didn't just, you know, for me come out of nowhere. Um, and so I kind of, I was going to church, but I kind of had like my own amalgamation of, you know, spiritual beliefs and things like that and just kind of went with that. And um yeah, that was prior to 2009. And I had a very like universalist view. It was like, oh, you know, everybody do whatever you want kind of thing, as long as, you know, like all paths lead to God kind of thing. And um, that was kind of the background that I came from before. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, before my and, and when you were visiting abortion clinics and talking to mm-hmm. uh, people, uh, I guess, as they were about to go in or mm-hmm. um, can you just give us a little bit more information about that? What was that like? What were the reactions that you were getting from yeah. people? Yeah, it was... Um, it was very, very intense. Um, you know, I tell people no day would be the same. You know, um, we would be the one that I went to was on a very busy kind of back street and we would get all kinds of comments from people driving by, you know, the FUs, the go to hell, you know. Um, and some people would drive by saying, you know, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, one woman actually, I know a couple of years ago, drove by and she's like, thank you for being out here. I wish somebody was out here 20 years ago for me. You know, and um, that even like hadn't even like shared that in a while. But like that hearing that makes me tear up, you know, thinking like how many um, women probably are, you know, scared and feeling like they really don't have a choice. And there's nobody there to actually even consider saying like, hey, like we do have help and resources for you. Um, So we were often met with lots of hostility, as you know, expected. um, But we still responded, you know, in truth and love. Um, there were people who would come over and like we had seen, we have seen babies saved. We've seen families, you know, um, kept together. We have tried to done our best to stay in contact with families if they gave us their information. Hey, you know, can we meet you for coffee? What do you guys need? How can we help you? And having this network of support to say, hey, what do you guys need? Like, how can, you know, we help and really be involved? What kind of resources were you all offering these individuals? Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> there are a number of pregnancy centers that are located in um, Atlanta and Georgia. So I had um, a booklet that I would give out with the, it's like a free um, number that you can call from anywhere in the country and find a pregnancy center that's close to you. So it was that number. And then I would put like, I think maybe two or three local pregnancy centers that were located like kind of with like a five or 10 mile radius, like, hey, you can go straight there. And what is a pregnancy center? Yeah. So a pregnancy center is basically, um, a resource center that can provide, and every pregnancy center is different, so it can provide 
um, pregnancy tests, community resources for women. So if you need WIC, food stamps, maybe even childcare, help finding a job, um, affordable housing. Um, they do ultrasounds. Um, there is, you know, you do parenting classes and you can even sign up for classes that can help you get, you know, different um, resources for your baby. You know, it's food, formula, um, clothing, there is mentoring. So every pregnancy center is different, but there are some that have more, a little bit more um, medical-based options. And then just even like pregnancy counseling. So talking to a woman, if she is still abortion vulnerable and just going through like, Let's talk about, you know, what, you know, um, why you're wanting to get an abortion and, you know, walk through some of um, some of the reasons that you're wanting to do that. You know, Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of your shift from being pro Planned Parenthood to now like working to actively um, encourage women to not seek abortions, mm-hmm. how would you say you identify politically now? Uh, definitely independent. <laughs> I'm independent. I'm neither. Um, Democrat, nor um, Republican, or liberal, nor conservative. Like, if you were to ask me on a different about my views on a topic, it might be like, oh, that's a little bit more leaning left. And then on another one, it might be, oh, I, I lean a little bit more right. And some, it's like, okay, there's like some purple here. Cause you know, you think red, blue. And I'm like, I feel like my politics are purple, <laughs> you know? So there's a, um, like, there's a, an amalgamation of, of both. But norm, like, I would say I'm independent if you had to ask. So, okay. Yeah. I'm going to read a statement to you that was used in a poll mm-hmm. just because you said that. And I want to hear your reaction. Mm-hmm. How do you d- identify to, with this? Um, so the statement is, the Republican Party is the only party committed to protecting the sanctity of life. How do you respond or react to that? <laughs> oh, um, that I actually I don't agree with that. Because, again, like I said, um, abortion is a symptom of a larger problem that we have and a lot lot of issues that we're not actually addressing. So while I get that um, most Republicans would say that or, well, actually, if you talk to some Republicans, they're actually not for the sanctity of life. That's a whole other topic. Um, But when you think about Okay, yes, they say, you know, they care about the baby in the womb. That is great. But then when you look at some of the racial issues that they've been quiet about, you know, it's like, so what about the sanctity of life also outside the womb? You know, for me as a black woman and my views over the years have have changed on a number of those things as well. And sitting here and watching the news and the Breonna Taylors and the Ahmaud Arberries, and it's like, okay, y'all say you're for life in the womb. That is great. But then what about life outside the womb, especially black and brown people? And I'm a black woman, you know? So I would I would disagree with that statement. Yeah. Got it. Um, what do you say to a Republican who feels that Democrats are not, uh, because of their take on abortion, mm-hmm. um, that they are not fully in a, in agreement with the sanctity of life? Mm-hmm. So I would agree that it's not like it's not a full spectrum um, of agreeing with the sanctity of life because the child in the womb is being left out. And actually, a couple of years ago, I was randomly thinking about this and I was like, I feel like it makes more sense for the Democratic Party to be whole life because it's like, okay, outside the womb, yes, you have, um, you know, you're fighting for the rights of, you know, women and children and, um, you know, affordable housing and affordable health care and education equity. I actually work at a school and I'm seeing more about, 
just like, wow, like education equity is a big deal, you know, and, um, you know, some other things I can't really, you know, think about. But it's like if we have all these wonderful resources for humans outside the womb, why not just continue to say we value the life inside the womb because we also value the life outside the womb, you know, and we have we're working to have all these resources for human flourishing in this way. So, again, kind of that's where my like. Like, come on, okay, we're like almost there, you know, like just what about that human in the womb as well and also caring for the mother who's carrying that life too, you know what I'm saying? So like, come on guys, like let's be, let's be consistent, you know, do our best to like be consistent say, hey, there's, we've got these resources, there's a better way. So do you believe that life begins at conception? Yeah, I do. And mm-hmm. is that rooted in your religious belief? Um, yes, that. And also, um, I mean, scientifically, if you, you know, were to look, okay, where does life begin? You know, the sperm meets the egg. That is the beginning of, of a human life. So it's it's both. Yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about the whole life project, and you've talked about this, is you reject the binary of being pro-choice or being pro-life. Mm-hmm. So given that, what was your reaction to the preliminary SCOTUS ruling? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, like I, I was, I was shocked. I was like, wait, is this actually happening? I'm actually seeing this in my lifetime, you know? And so while I was like, obviously like this is, I'm like, okay, this is a good thing, but our work isn't done, you know? Um, And I've been telling my friends, I'm like, I don't want to see anybody who says they're pro-life whole life being like, oh, wait, this is great. Our work is done. Let's kick our feet up and have an Arnold Palmer on the front porch. Like, no, we still have work to do because there is going to be even more pushback from the other side. You know, I mean, I was, you know, I read through um, some news articles on, you know, you see it on Facebook, you see it everywhere, whatever. But like how this is it's just going to make people go harder for abortion. And so we can't, like our work isn't done in trying to create a culture of life and laws that are seeking to protect all life. Um, So while I was excited, like I wasn't like, oh great, our work is done. I'm like, no, like we still have work to do. Like we've been doing the work and like we have, there is more work to be done and more conversations to be had. Um, So that was kind of like my initial thought, like we're not done. Got it. Yeah. Um, you know, in college, I also went to Georgia State. Okay. Um, and I had a friend at Georgia State who was in the ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, I think, 2021 20, when this happened. Um, I think 20. Um, she was raped. Um, mm-hmm. It was her first time having sex. Um, got pregnant. Had an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, because she did not want to raise a child that was um, conceived in that manner. Mm-hmm. So do you believe that someone who has a situation like that has the right to an abortion? So I'm going to be very unpopular and uh, have an unpopular opinion, but um, I would say no. And I'm going to break down why I would say that. Um, I feel like from the left and the right, this, well, from the left, and I'm not saying you, but like just in general, a lot of people will always bring up, you know, um, rape or the incest. And my thing is like, okay, pause. Rape is one of the most heinous and vile things that you could do to another human being. And um, I actually have friends who've been sexually assaulted. Um, And um, I know, you know, stories of women who've been sexually assaulted, who've gotten pregnant, who have carried their babies to term because they've said, my child didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve this. My child didn't either. 
Um, and some of them had the support they needed to go through that pregnancy. Some of them didn't. And I've also read stories from women who, kind of like your friend, you know, were raped, got pregnant and had the abortion. And so, again, man, how do I break this down? But um, take your time. I think we have to address violence against women. So that's number one. Um, addressing where is the punishment for the rapist? Um, you know, so, um, yeah, where is the punishment for that person? Where is the, where was the support for, you know, your friend or anyone else who, a woman who was sexually assaulted to not look past the trauma that a woman just experienced from being, whether it was coerced or sexually assaulted and who is also now pregnant on top of that, not looking past the, what just happened to her and the trauma that just happened to say, okay, we need to come alongside you. We need to get you counseling. We need to find out who did this. We need to get them punished to the fullest extent of the law and do our best to encourage you that like the in the way that you were victimized, please don't also go and victimize your baby. And I know for some people I'm like, oh, why not? but yeah, I just think it's a, it's a very, it's a very complex and multi-layered issue. But I would say even in rape and incest, the same way that that woman didn't deserve to be assaulted um, and violated, that child also doesn't deserve to be assaulted and violated in the womb. Um, and to encourage a woman to say, I understand or sympathize, even if you can't empathize, the thought of the mindset of having to have your rapist baby, um, but also remembering to like, this is also your your child who didn't do anything to deserve. They didn't ask to be conceived. You didn't ask to be assaulted. Um, and just also recognizing that abortion further is going to traumatize like that child. Um, having that abortion can further traumatize that woman. Because um, a lot of people- More than seeing the, uh, more than bearing a child and for the duration of your adult life, knowing that that child was conceived in rape, you think that's more traumatizing? So- I can't speak for every woman, but I would say it would it would definitely be traumatizing to have to associate I aborted a child who was conceived in rape when maybe if someone had come alongside me or someone could help me and say, okay, adoption is an option. You know, there is, um, there are people who would raise your child. And it's a, like, I... I you know, I completely hear what you're saying because I'm like a very empathetic person. But I, I don't think abortion is going to solve the problem of um, children being conceived in rape or, um, or or sexual assault. So, again, I think there's like other things that we also have to talk about when it comes along with abortion, specifically in the case of like rape and, okay. and incest, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then yeah. what about for the life of the mother? So when there is, you know, something's wrong with um, the unborn child and the mother, if the mother gives birth, there's a high potential for her to die in that mm -hmm. process. Um, and the child is not, would not be a viable uh, infant uh, mm -hmm. if given birth. So what in the, what about in those instances where truly it's either the, ch the child comes out and the mother dies or either way the child is going to die? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have I'm like trying to remember like some of the I guess what I'm what I'm yeah. really asking is <clears throat> is is 
and I understand that your the whole life project is not necessarily binary, but in some instances, perhaps it is binary when you wouldn't want um, a child aborted if if the if the child was conceived during because of rape or incest, mm-hmm. or if the mother's life is at stake. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are binary choices. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile? you know, being whole life, but then also binary in particular instances. Yeah. So I guess when you were asking binary, I thought that maybe you meant like specifically like pol- like political party binary. No, no, no. I mean, either okay. pro-life okay. or pro-choice. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So in that instance, like the whole life project, we would say that we are binary when it comes to that, but we're not going to skip over um, all the different emotions that a woman might be feeling in all the different situations. Cause again, there are some people who are just like, Oh, well, like I saw something on Facebook the other day that made me so angry. And this was from a professing Christian person. It's like, Oh, well, if you're not too, what did he say? He was like, you're not too poor to have a baby. Then you're not too poor to have sex or something. And I was like, right. What does that mean? It, exactly. That's what I was like, what? that has nothing to do with anything. And I, actually had like saw some people who were like oh yeah duh. and I'm like do y'all not realize how idiotic that sounds like that actually has nothing to do with anything you know so um anyways there are just some people who are just blatantly looking past people's actual concerns of like okay having a child can be very expensive and I feel like I don't have the resource I don't have the money it's like okay so instead of making inflammatory statements like that say okay she has an actual concern so let's address that and go from there um but to get back to your point um so yes the whole life project we would say that we um, are binary in this because we are committed to having um to caring for um you know the lives of of all humans um regardless of you know how they are conceived and um so in the case of the life of the mother um, there are, I don't know if I've read of something where it was like, oh, we have to abort this child to save the life of the mother. Um, but I have read, I think it was on the, um, I could be wrong, the Association of American Pro-Life Obstet- uh, um, Obstet- uh, Obstetrics and Gynecologists, where if that is a case, they would do something like an emergency delivery, where they are not seeking to end the life of the child, because that is what abortion is, is seeking to um, electively end the life of a child. But they would say, okay, there's a complication here. We're going to try and save the life of the mother and the baby. So we do an emergency delivery or emergency C-section, because we're trying to save both, right? Instead of, oh, we have to in the life of this child to save the mother. So I think there are, um, we have to think about those things where it's like, okay, we value both lives, but we're not going to end one to save the other. Like, I'm not going to stop the mother's heartbeat so we can deliver the baby, but we're also not going to start the, you know, stop the life of the baby to um, save the mother. So it's like, there's got to be more conversations about, wait a minute, emergency delivery or, or something, you know, and do everything, get the baby out, do everything we can to save the life of the child. But if that child does not make it, it's not because we have gone to purposely end the life of that child. You know, does that make, I don't know if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one last question in this realm. Yeah. Um, What's your take on plan B? Oh yeah. So that is a, a great question. So with plan B, um, I think we have to be really 
I know some people would say it's not abortifacient. Um, and that is just like a higher dose of, you know, and there's a lot of different birth control pills and cocktails of, you know, hormones out there. Um, I would not be like in good conscience. I wouldn't be able to say like, yeah, plan B is, is a great option. Um, because if, because I do believe life begins at conception, if this is a higher dose of birth control and some birth control or hormonal birth control can be abortifacient, um, that would be putting the life of a newly created human um, at risk for, yeah. So do you think that Plan B should be accessible to women? <sighs> I, I would, yeah, I would, I would have to say no. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Brittany, switching gears just a little bit here. Um, what do you think the other side gets wrong or just does not understand about the pro-life movement? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other side gets wrong that, again, kind of like with the whole life project, we've said that to be pro-life is to be anti-woman. Um, I think so there's that. Um, I think some people believing that, um, you know, we're seeking to control women's bodies um, is not a correct assessment. Um, oh, that we don't care about the woman as well, you know, the mother as well, or her situation. Um, that it is, well, this is kind of accurate, that it's a bunch of old white men trying to tell women what to do. You know, it's like we can talk about that because actually, you know, it's a little bit accurate. But um, <laughs> so I think those are just like a, a, a couple of, um, or that, you know, maybe, oh, well, what else are y'all doing for, you know, women and their children? Or I don't see people adopting or, you know, fostering and things like that, you know. So I think those are some of their, um, some of the things that I'm, you know, have heard from the other side. Um, so just in that same vein, to say that if you're pro-life, that means you're anti-woman. But it, just thinking about Christianity, you know, I, I grew up in the church as well. And so I know a lot of the conversation is about God gives you the, God gives you the freedom of choice. And so why not give women the freedom of choice? And then at the end of the day, that decision is between them and God. Mm. Now, that's a great, that's a great question. So I would say to that, that yes, even though we have the freedom to, you know, make certain choices and decisions, um, if you look at the whole of scripture and how God loves humanity and values humanity, and he's created us from like, you know, I mean, he knew us before he made us and he created us in our mother's wombs. Um, if something is would directly go against something that he's like, no, I don't want you to do this. Then um, I think using kind of that and not saying you, but like someone using that is a little bit um, deceptive to try and say, oh, well, if God gives us choice and like, just, you know, let her kind of go and do whatever she wants to do. And I understand people are always going to do whatever they want to do, but I mean, it's, that, it's like it's like drugs, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you have the freedom to choose whether or not you're going to partake in drugs, right? You have the freedom whether or not to have sex outside of marriage. You have the freedom to make these decisions. And at the end of the day, 
it's a conversation about morality. Mm-hmm. And so it, would you say, or is it, it seems like the abortion conversation is about legislation of morality mm-hmm. when that really is ultimately a freedom of choice conversation. And then you have to, as an individual, reconcile your decisions with your maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. But I would also say that we already do, in a sense, legislate certain more, you know, certain morals, you know. Um, so I do think that there is some room to say, okay, there are certain things that we know, like we, so like with the drug conversation, right? It's like, I get, you know, a lot of us are like, okay, people are going to use drugs. But and even are, though drugs are legal or mm-hmm. illegal, rather, people still take drugs, mm-hmm. right? They still use drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it, de- it it depends on the worldview you're coming from. If you're seeing as like, and, and morals and ethics are a little bit different, but if you're like, okay, I understand someone might want to choose to do this, but that even though that's not the best thing for them to do, if we're thinking about the whole scope of it, um, I think there are some things worth um, not just pushing for legislation to say, hey, this isn't a good idea because we care about you as a person. We recognize how damaging. Okay, there we go. We recognize how damaging it can be. Even if you think that this is a good idea for you, we're still going to sit here. We're still going to push back and say, we care about you as an individual, as a whole person. And we don't want to see you do this. If that kind of makes sense. I think that's where my thoughts were trying to go and form to. Got it. Okay. One thing we haven't talked in this conversation is about the men. Um, so what is the role of the man in this conversation about um, should a woman have access to abortion? Should mm-hmm. we live in a pro-life society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a number of <laughs> things I was kind of thinking about um, the other day. I think the role of men in this conversation, number one, is to do their best to empathize with a woman who would find herself in a situation where she's pregnant and may not necessarily want to be. Um, For men to take responsibility for the children that they do create with women instead of saying, and actually one of the, one of the things I've seen with kind of abortion when I was especially going to um, do outreach was men driving the women there and they're just like walking in and like, yeah. And honestly, like, Abortion allows men to not take responsibility for the children they create. Um, Because if you think about it, you know, for us as women, if we get pregnant, you know, we can bear one child a year, but a man can go out and sow a seed everywhere and get, you know, 100 women, however many women pregnant a year. And there's no accountability. There's no responsibility. So I think men being like, man, we got to like, you know, in a sense, and I say man up lightly, but like man up and take responsibility for these children that we do create and say, hey, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to help raise this child. You know, we could do this together. And there's a statistic. I can't remember um, um, the actual statistic, but that says, or maybe interviewed women or something like that. But when a woman is facing um, an unplanned pregnancy, if her partner says, hey, I'm here to support you, like we can do this together. She is I don't know how many times less likely to get an abortion because she has that support. So I need to hear more men saying, hey, we're going to step up to the plate. Like if we have children, we're stepping up to the plate. You know, we're going to take care of them. Um, Being responsible with 
what we do and who we do it with, um, empathizing, listening more to women's um, women's issues and understand understanding that we, when it comes to childbirth and pregnancy, and I understand this, you know, um, that we bear the brunt of obviously the pregnancy and the childbirth and postpartum and perinatal depression and all these different things and maternal care and support after baby and child rearing in general. So a lot of those things we bear the brunt of that we should not have to, especially if there are two parties involved in creating this child. Um, so those are just kind of some of the, some of the um, top of my head, mm-hmm. you know, things that I can think about for men. Do you think that there should be legislation around what the roles and responsibilities are of a father who gets, uh, of a man who gets uh, a woman pregnant? Off the top of my head, I want to say yes, but I definitely think there needs to be, there would need to be more conversation around what that would, what that would look like. I know, and I think it was Florida, some Democrats sort of in jest um, introduced some legislation that would require um, if the, if the couple were not together, uh, that the father of the child would have to start ta- making um, child support payments in mm. utero. Wow. Uh, that's just one thing that comes to mind. Wow. Because, and I, I understand that, and it kind of makes sense to some degree, because if, if we are living in, a, in America where abortion is illegal um, and it is incredibly risky to go get an abortion outside in it, where it's not legal mm-hmm. um, and the mother does decide to go ahead and carry that child to full term and she is a single mother, right. there aren't a lot of resources available. And that seems like a way to hold both parties accountable um, and support the mother throughout the pregnancy. So that's an interesting one. I'm not saying it should certainly happen, but I definitely think it's worth a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to look that up. I did not, I don't remember seeing that. But I'll It didn't pass, that. obviously, because okay. it was a Republican legislation, mm-hmm. a Republican legislator, but it was um, it was part of the, uh, the conversation in Florida about to what degree do we ban abortion, and that's why the Roe v. Wade ruling or preliminary ruling from the Supreme Court is such a big deal because it would mm-hmm. then bring it down to the state level, right? Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a state's rights issue. Mm-hmm. And the state can determine if abortion would be banned or to what degree. So if the the SCOTUS ruling is upheld um, and abortions are banned in the United States, what is the role of the Whole Life Project um, in supporting women who are now going to carry a child to full term um, or women who just take that risk um, and have an abortion that is illegal in a back alley. What is the role of the whole life project going forward? Assuming that we do end up living again in a country where uh, it's illegal or very difficult to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that um, for us with the whole life project is, you know, again, with being pro-woman and pro-child is seeking, um, to look at legislation that would, again, like support mothers. So, okay, affordable child care, um, maternal health care, addressing the maternal mortality rate. Um, even, you know, some of the legislation that you mentioned that was in Florida, like what it looks like for the father to be involved and in actually supporting the woman. Um, and I think also finding more people who could kind of join forces and partner to 
not just with the material help, but also with the, um, this is a lifelong thing. You know, motherhood is, I have friends who are moms and I'm like, God bless you all. You know, I don't have any kids yet, you know, um, but I, you know, eventually, you know, might want them and I would love to like, you know, foster, adopt, all those different things. But motherhood is a lifelong thing. So it's not even just, okay, we've got the material. So, okay, you know, she's got a job that we're helping her get. She's got, you know, an affordable apartment. We've got, you know, childcare for her, but it doesn't just stop there. There has to be a pouring into a uh, pouring into um, a mentoring sort of like a walking of side by side through motherhood and not just even motherhood, but like who she is like as a woman, because um, her identity is not in her being, you know, a wife or a mother or whatever that is. Like she has her own individual identity. So what are her other hopes and dreams and goals that she has, you know? Um, and I think that's also something too to um, mention is encouraging women, like you can have your baby and your dreams. You don't have to completely give them up. They might shift, you know, things, I mean, things happen to us all the time. We're like, okay, I have this goal and something happens and we get a little detour, but like, if it's meant to happen, we're going to come back to it, even if it's a year or two, five later. And, you know, even our hope, dreams and goals change. Um, so not just providing that material support um, and even the legislative support of um, having these, you know, kind of um, supports in places, but the walking alongside and the, um, yeah, not that answers the question, but the, so not just the material, but the practical and the spiritual. So again, it's a holistic view, not just like, oh, here's the legislation, we're done. Again, our work isn't done. It's not just, oh, here's the material support and you got all your little material stuff, but then like, oh, you're good. Okay, that's great. You're sustainable now, but like, we want to continue walking along with you and your child for as long as we're able to and you want us here. So, yeah. Uh, just last question. What do you say to the woman, um, and I'm going to put this in a couple of categories. So the woman who is vehemently pro-choice um, and feels that even after she listens to this, she's still firmly in her point of view and is not going to shake that. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to her? Yeah. And then the second question is, what do you say to the woman who's wrestling with this and is feels you know they're torn in this direction they're torn in the other direction but they don't quite know what's the right path forward mm -hmm. um yeah to both of those women like i said i love meeting new people i love having conversations i would say let's go have coffee you know let's i want to my thing is i want to hear people's stories i want to hear their backgrounds and where they're from and how they grew up and how they got to some of the views that they did um, because I think in this conversation and any other conversation, there's there's underlying reasons of why we believe what we believe. And I'm always curious to hear, just like, start from the beginning. Just tell me about you and who you are and really come to an understanding. Um, so I'd say that I would say that for both of those women. Um, um, for the woman who is, you know, vehemently, you know, pro-choice, um, I would encourage her um to I don't know I guess search deep down and ask herself like is there any way that we can we can have both you know we can we can care for the mother and the child and find a way to value both the life of the mother and the life of the child equally um because at some point we were all in the womb, you know, and just the way our lives have value when we were in our mother's wombs and now we're outside the same way that child does. And um, 
always will. So that's kind of like my, you know, first thing would be like, hey, here's my number. Let's get coffee. And then, um, yeah, kind of going from there. Um, and then for the woman who's wrestling, you know, the same, just like ask yourself these questions like, is human life valuable inside the womb and outside the womb? What are some, um, yeah, just really, start, it starts by asking yourself these questions, you know, and really coming to a place of being like, maybe I have to do what's unpopular and say what's unpopular if it means um, doing what's right and really seeking to value all human life, you know, inside and outside the womb. Brittany Anthony of The Whole Life Project, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Kwajalein Jackson. She is currently serving as the Executive Director at Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta. Since 2013, she has led the expansion of this organization statewide and with a national impact, has deepened its community partnerships, leading the, or the organization's civic engagement, advocacy, education, and outreach teams. In 2018, she became the Feminist Center's first Black woman executive director. Kwajalein, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, so I just gave folks a tiny bit of your bio. Uh, but give us a little bit more. Talk to us about your upbringing, how you got into the work that you were doing today. Well, I was raised in St. Louis, Missouri and came to Atlanta for college. I attended Spelman College and decided to stay, was very connected to the South in a way that I wasn't to the Midwest. And though my major at Spelman was economics and I ended up going into banking, I do think that the Black feminist foundation that exists at that place was a part of what formed the way that I saw the world, what helped me to understand all the different ways that you can be a Black woman and exist in your fullness. And so I think all of those things stuck with me. Um, but I did go into banking and finance and worked for community development finance department of a local bank, investing in low-income communities, or at least that's what I thought at the time. Now, in retrospect, thinking about the role that I played, it was really an agent of gentrification, um, tearing down low-income housing projects, replacing them with mixed income developments, um, displacing people. So I couldn't stay there. I felt like my moral center was being compromised. So I left and went into nonprofit work. I started at Wonder Root, an art and social change organization. And there I really got connected to more of the community organizations that were doing work that I cared about including Feminist Women's Health Center. Um, when I was working at the Art Center, Feminist came and did an abortion speak out in our basement. Um, other reproductive justice organizations like Spark did their fire media camp photography show at Wonder Root. I met those organizations. I met those leaders. I got sort of more deeply connected into movement work. So when an opportunity came to become a volunteer coordinator at Feminist Women's Health Center, I applied and was able to start my 
professional career in reproductive justice. It was really fortunate to me that um, sort of my academic career after Spelman, I went to the Andrew Young School of Policy. And so I didn't think that that would necessarily come into play as seamlessly in my work. But I started working at the Capitol, helping to defend against some of the restrictions that would be introduced by Georgia to try to prevent or limit people's access to care. Um, And so over time, I just deepened in that work, those relationships, those partnerships, and was ultimately named the executive director in 2018. So that's kind of a short but long (laughs) intro. Got it. And what does the Feminist Center do? So Feminist Women's Health Center was founded in 1976. So not very long after Roe versus Wade was originally decided. We provide both medication and procedural abortion care. But in addition to that, we also provide comprehensive gynecological care, wellness services, trans health care, contraceptive services. The, we try to be as holistic as possible in the approach to direct service delivery. Outside the clinic, though, we do advocacy, public policy work, civic engagement, leadership development, and sexual and reproductive health education in community. And do you primarily focus on Black women? Well, the majority of the patients that we see are Black people. The majority of the people who work at Feminist Health Center providing care are also Black people. Um, We know that reproductive health services are needed by many, many kinds of people, but we also are able to, because we're a nonprofit, keep our prices as low as possible. And so often the patients that come to us are the people who are the most in need. Kwajalein, the abortion conversation is oftentimes a faith-based conversation. Um, So can you just walk us through your religious upbringing and your background? I was raised Christian. I was uh, United Methodist when I was a kid. I was confirmed and everything in the United Methodist Church. Um, As an adult, I spent many, many years in a non-denominational megachurch in Atlanta, you know, deeply connected in the work that was happening at the church. Um, But I have made some different decisions recently. It doesn't, my connection with God is not rooted in um, some of the ways I've seen organized religion function and frankly harm people, um, shame people, make people feel that their lives are unworthy, that they are, decisions are, um, hurting God. I just really found that that was not a tenable situation for me to stay in. So I don't attend a church now, but I think very deeply often about the, the pieces of my upbringing that sort of still stick with me, sort of the ways that like Bible verses will just pop into um, the front of my mind, you know, being rooted and established in love Um, the iron sharpening iron, like some of those things are just sort of like at the tip of my tongue. 
but none of them have undermined or complicated my ability to care about people who are pregnant, who are making decisions about their lives. Nothing in the way that I've ever understood the Bible or the teachings of Jesus has made me believe that people don't have sovereignty over their bodies and the ability to make choices about how they want to live their futures. Got it. Um, I'll just kind of jump right into the the conversation here. In, in the research, one of the things that I found is that black women, and you, you, I want to hear your take on this, black women disproportionately have more abortions than women of other races. Um, this is according to CDC. Should that be alarming to the black community? What I think it is more an indicator of is the conditions that black people find themselves in in this country. There are many people who choose abortion because of the circumstances of their lives, because of their inability to support and care for the number of children that they already have, because of the educational or professional opportunities that might be in front of them. I really don't want to perpetuate the narrative that poor people should not have families, that poor people should not bring more children into the world. There's an idea that people have that if you can't afford to have a child, you shouldn't be able to. That's not the narrative that we're trying to put forward. What we want people to have is all of the resources they need to thrive in the world. And we want abortion to be available and accessible and affordable for people who need it for whatever reason they might need it. But there's not a underlying conspiracy (laughs) that exists. Um, There are lots of different things that bring people to the decision about abortion. A million different reasons. Some of them are difficult and tragic and hard, and some of them are clear and relatively simple and are not the end of the world for them. What I would like to see are more pathways to support the well-being of Black people in this country, including unfettered access to abortion. Okay, so my next question to you is, do you believe there should be restrictions on abortion? (laughs) It sounds like you're saying no. I don't. Can you explain that? I sure can. I'm happy to. Um, Again, abortion care is very, very safe. Abortion care has existed for thousands of years. People have been controlling their reproduction for as long as people have existed and had the ability to become pregnant. And having full autonomy, full sovereignty, full control over what happens inside your body is so important for how you get to exist in the world. So having access, again, unfettered, unencumbered access to abortion care could be the very thing that enables you to build your family in the future. Could be the very thing that sets you up for where you are destined to go. So I think that the ability to both have safe, healthy, intended pregnancies, just as important as the ability to terminate a pregnancy. 
Got it. So when you heard about the leaked SCOTUS ruling, what was your reaction? Advocates in the reproductive health rights and justice community have been preparing for all the possible scenarios to come out of the Supreme Court for months, if not years, if we're really honest about how things have been going over time. At the same time, the leak was unexpected and um, disappointing. I mean, honestly, felt very crushing to read the sentiments that were expressed in the opinion, the kinds of comparisons that were being made, particularly comparing the protection of the quote unquote unborn to the protections that have been um, extended for black people that um, certainly hit me like particularly hard in the ways that that narrative has been shaped. Um, I mean, I'll just say, frankly, like I don't hinge my expectations of liberation on the courts. They have not proven capable of protecting people like us in the long term. At the same time, I think we need something like this to happen for the country, for your average person, for people who are working in the field with me to actually think about what we need instead. Roe was never sufficient. Roe was not a strong enough protection for the things that we actually need in our communities. And so my hope is that this is an opportunity for us to build something stronger. And what does something stronger look like? So within the legal framework, certainly having codified explicit protection of abortion, the Roe decision in 1973 rests upon the right to privacy it's not a right to abortion. It's a right to privacy. And therefore, underneath that um, extended medical decisions and underneath that saying abortion is included. But also it included caveats around the viability of the pregnancy. And then that was further complicated by subsequent rulings. So having something like the Women's Health Protection Act, for example, which sets a national standard for what is um, a true barrier or burden for someone to have to encounter when they're trying to access care. So this is one federal level example. Do you want to just pause on that? So the, the Women's Health Protection Act is something that Democrats right now are having a conversation about putting forth the bill. Uh, Senator Warnock in Georgia has, has said that he agrees that it should be put forth. However, it would likely require eliminating the filibuster. Do you think it's worth eliminating the filibuster, even if Republicans end up getting control of the Senate in January of next year? I will say I'm not a political scholar, so I don't know everything about what happens at the congressional level. But we have seen numerous examples of ways that the filibuster has failed us. And so I think. I believe in making sure that we are putting forth policies that affect people's lives rather than protecting um, the intricacies of like how our government works. I'm just, again, you know, maybe this is not the popular opinion, but the 
the government as it is currently constructed was not designed for our good. And when I'm speaking, speaking specifically of communities of color, of black people, it was not designed for our good. And so I am much more interested in moving forward things that will affect people's everyday walking around lives more than I am in protecting a procedure or a tool. The tool is not what's going to save people. The tool is not what's going to make the difference between life and death in people's lives. So I ask that because eliminating the filibuster would mean that Republicans uh, would then, if they indeed end up controlling the Senate in 2023, they would have the votes that they need to pass bills that could be even more restrictive than some things we've seen that have caused alarm. Uh, so I understand your your point of view on the filibuster, but thinking about broadly other issues that you care about, do you think it is worth eliminating the filibuster to pass this particular bill? I think that the current construction of Congress will continue to oscillate as it has over the course of history. And that that cannot be a barrier for affecting people's immediacy right now. That cannot be, we cannot just hope that one day all of the sands of time will change and we will, we, we're in a majority position right now and are not able to have the things that we need. We have been in a majority position before and still seen obstacles. And so I am, again, not interested in whether or not elections are won. I'm more interested in how people are able to live in this country. The government is intended to be a tool to support our well-being and not the other way around. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Um, if indeed abortions are restricted uh, and indeed criminalized, what does that mean for the Feminist Women's Health Center? Well, in the short term, looking at what is sort of on the horizon for Georgia, there are a few things that could happen. Currently, there is a six-week ban that has been enjoined by the courts but is in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that the judges have said explicitly they will not rule on before something comes down from the Supreme Court. So Georgia's gestational limit depends explicitly on the decision that is ultimately waged by the court, as is the case with many states around the country. What I will say is that the elections that are upcoming can make a significant difference in what is possible in Georgia in the immediate future. So I am not planning my scenarios around abortion being completely eliminated. What we're doing is trying to expand our wellness services so that we can continue to provide the comprehensive care that our communities need. And at the same time, we are consistently pouring and investing our resources and energy into providing the most compassionate and safe abortion care possible. We're mobilizing people in the community so that they can get engaged in the election. They can get registered to vote. They can understand how, while so much attention has been focused on the federal level, many of the very important decisions are being made right here at home and that they have much more power 
than many of these policymakers would like to let us believe. So those are the things that we're focused on. We are committed to making sure that abortion is accessible to people no matter what. So we are going to do everything we can to make sure that it is protected for the people of Georgia. For the person who's an independent uh, and they're thinking about how they're going to vote in the upcoming uh, primary and then obviously in the general in November, what do you say to them about this particular issue? So Feminist Women's Health Center is a 501c3, so we're a nonpartisan organization. What I encourage people to do is to really deeply understand who are the people who are making the decision that you care about. So beyond just abortion as an issue, if you care about the criminal justice system, you need to understand who's running for sheriff. If you care about what's happening in the public schools, you need to understand who's running for the school board. At the same time, understanding what decisions are made at the legislative level and what things the governor can and can't influence and affect are really, really important. So regardless of party, I think it's important for people to understand beyond the commercials, what is the real content of the platforms? What is the track record? What are the things that folks have done when they've held previous office or other careers that they've held? Trying to understand how those people exist in the world and what kind of change they are positing should affect how you vote. I'm going to read a question or a statement rather that was used in a poll and I want to get your reaction to it. And it is the Republican Party is the only party committed to protecting the sanctity of life. So my reaction to that is whose life? Can you expound? <laughs> Oftentimes, people who are anti-abortion try to justify some of their actions by saying that they are protecting life. Um, the person who is pregnant has a life, has a future. Um, the children who are already here have life, have a future. There are ways that we can preserve, invest in, fortify, cultivate life that are far beyond what happens during the 40 weeks of pregnancy. And so I would say it is important for us to consider a full life. What are the things that are necessary to contribute to people's ability to live a full life? What do you think is misunderstood about the pro-choice movement? So I, while I understand that a lot of people use the phrase pro-choice, I consider myself a part of the reproductive justice movement. And reproductive justice is interested in our ability to choose when, how, under what circumstances we grow and build our families, how we decide whether or when to become pregnant or not, and how to raise our families in safe, healthy communities. So abortion is a small slice of that, but it's not the fullness of what our movement is focused on. So I think that that may be part of it. I mean, that may be the answer in and of itself, that there is a part of the discussion that is very narrowly defined as 
a choice about pregnant or not pregnant or parent or not parent, a misconception that people who choose abortion don't want kids ever or don't already have kids, um, have made some mistake, have been irresponsible. But again, I said at the earlier in the conversation, there's a million different reasons that somebody might need to terminate this pregnancy. And I think the last thing I'll say is one of the other misconceptions is just that the legal right is the only thing that's necessary in order to make abortion possible. We've had a legal right to abortion for over 50 years, but we have not had full unfettered access because of the many barriers that exist between people and care. So whether that's the enough, enough resources to pay for abortion services, the ability to travel if the care you need is not available where you live, access to childcare, again, for the families you are already raising, the ability to take time off work, not to mention being able to find a safe, welcoming space where you can receive that care. So all of those things affect people's access, even if the right is there, that doesn't mean it's available to everybody who needs it in the ways that they need it. So one of the things that uh, we're seeing is that there are about 26 states uh, that are saying that they will either uh, make abortion illegal or enact very strict uh, restrictions on it. And one of those could even mean if you cross state lines, uh, you could be fined upwards. I think one state is talking about $50,000. So is, if that happens uh, and if Georgia becomes a state where it is that restrictive, again, back to your organization, how would you all respond to that? What do you do then? Well, there are many um, very talented and experienced um, legal organizations that are working to understand both the criminalization and um, the ways that now the civil courts will affect people's ability to get the care that they need, to travel for care. Um, so I certainly, as a non-lawyer, couldn't tell you how to protect people at the border or how even the court could enforce a law preventing people to freely travel state to state, um, those things are, you know, it's a really awful scenario to imagine. And so I'm really grateful that the legal scholars, the attorneys, the academics are working on like the ways to address how anti-abortion folks are throwing everything they can at the wall. To scale back a little bit from that, what I'll say, Feminist Center works in partnership with abortion funds that have been instrumental and will continue to be super vital in mapping out the logistics that help people get to the care that they need. So abortion funds not only help people pay for their abortions, but help with that practical support. Um, sometimes buying plane tickets or train tickets, helping arrange for people to have a ride or a place to stay, um, making sure that folks have snacks and gas all along the way. 
And so we've seen um, abortion funds across the state of Texas, for example, shortly after SB8 was enacted and severely restricted abortion access in the state, really step in to be the ecosystem that helps people access care how and when they need it. The other thing that I will mention that is not specific to my organization, but I think will play a role in what happens in the future is self-managed abortion. So, and this may even go back to your earlier question about the misconceptions. There is a way that people talk about abortions that happen outside of a clinical space as dangerous, as scary, as dirty. Um, they They reflect back these images from the 60s and 70s. But what what we know now is that medication abortion is incredibly safe. And the ability for people to manage their own abortions in their homes um, with a small support team through telehealth um, is absolutely a way that people can navigate this system. Again, whether or not there are legal barriers that are put in place in order to dissuade people from using that as an option remains to be seen. But what we know from the research is that medication is a way that people can control their pregnancies and take that into their own hands. And just to explain for folks, medication abortion would be basically taking a a pill and, and that would induce the, okay. Absolutely. And that's separate from Plan B. Yes. Plan B is a pregnancy prevention. It is not an abortion pill. Got it. What is the role of men, of fathers, in this conversation? Well, again, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but I don't use any gendered language when I'm talking about abortion care or pregnancy because lots of different kinds of people can get pregnant and are in need of reproductive health services. And so... That's just sort of one part of the answer. I will just say regularly in the clinic where I work, um, partners are coming with their with their patient to support them through their decisions. Um, that is the one of the most common ways that we see people come to get care. Um, and so I think that I want people to be able to be in safe relationships where they can talk openly about what they need, what's important for them, how they're feeling, um, and that those decisions can be come to in a loving environment. That's the best that I could offer. Ultimately, the decision about pregnancy should rest with the pregnant person. At the end of the day, if we don't own anything else, we own our own bodies. And so being able to stand firm in your decision, not be coerced in either direction, but to be able to make the decision on your own and have people around you love you. What is your message to someone who's reading the news and is um, scared about what might happen? What's your message to them? I would encourage people to find out what abortion funds are active in their area. It's a great place to donate or volunteer to get engaged. I would also encourage folks to investigate, like where are your local clinics? Are there independent providers that are doing work where you live 
and find out what they need, whether that's somebody to buy lunch for their staff, somebody to volunteer to be an escort in the parking lot, just writing thank you notes to the providers, to the doctors. I think all of those things are really um, appreciated and beneficial in this time. I would not encourage people to just strike out on their own. I hope that people understand that there is a full infrastructure that exists. There are people who've been working in this field for decades who can give you clear instructions about exactly how to plug in. I would encourage people to register to vote and to vote locally, make sure that they are engaged in what's happening in their own communities, not just focusing their attention on what's happening in Washington, D.C., because again, they have so much more influence over the decisions that are being made where they live than they realize. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask you that you think is important to bring to the conversation? I guess the only other thing that I would mention is that I know that often people immediately equate abortion issues with Planned Parenthood. And so I just wanted to remind folks that Planned Parenthood is an integral part of this work, but they're not the only people who are providing care. The majority of abortion services are being provided by independent providers. Um, the majority of uh, abortions that happen later in pregnancy are provided by independent providers. And so just considering the full landscape of who's providing care in this country is also a port, an important part of the story. Um, if you're interested in learning more about like what independent abortion providers look like, the Abortion Care Network is a membership organization that supports independent providers and can help you learn about what's happening where you live. Got it, Kwajalein, our time came by too fast. Uh, your great interview. Uh, thank you again for joining the pod. My pleasure. All right. I want to end the show with some data. Uh, I'm going to link to this in the show notes. Pew Research, you all hear me uh, reference them often. They released some data at the beginning of May that showed that most Democrats say that there were at least some instances in which abortion should be illegal. And most Republicans say that there are at least some instances in which abortion should be legal, including when the life or health of a pregnant woman is at risk, or even when that pregnancy is the result of rape. Again, according to Pew Research, roughly half of all Americans say that there are situations where abortion is morally wrong, but it should still be legal. However, based on what their politicians have said or what laws are currently on the books, based off what was going to happen with Roe v. Wade, 26 states are likely or certain to ban abortion. I should also mention that since the preliminary ruling was released, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that a national abortion ban is possible. It would require getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, if the Democrats don't do it this year. And why that's important, what McConnell said, is because if Democrats lose the Senate, McConnell will become the Senate Majority Leader 
if Republicans take over the Senate in 2023. So thank you for listening all the way through this episode. I know it was a little bit longer, but I hope that these conversations have been eye-opening. And now that you've heard the legal take, the pro-life take, the pro-choice take, I want to hear from you. So leave a voice note with your take. Did you hear something that surprised you? Is there a question that you wanted to ask them that you wish I had asked? Do you agree with the SCOTUS ruling? Or do you think this is all insane? Tell me in the, in the comments uh, and leave a voice note. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At.